The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is the History of the World podcast, unscripted. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast, unscripted, with me, Chris Hasler. Well, I probably owe you all a little apology. Um, I know a lot of you are expecting the Siege of Orléans and uh, Joan of Arc this week, Um, but unfortunately we're going to have to wait another week for that episode. I I just ran out of time to finalise the episode and um, of course... I'm not going to I'm not going to compromise on the quality of the work so I've slipped in uh, just one unscripted episode to buy me a bit of time. However, um I know a lot of you may be disappointed with the unscripted episodes and uh, then maybe not as, you know, as in- entertaining as the full episode. So, uh, I thought that this time I would try something a bit different. And uh, it's really based on the fact that the History of the World podcasters has now created a good library of episodes and we're now approaching the end of our fifth year. So we've we've sort of built up quite a legacy, haven't we? And we can even look back and reflect on that legacy and um, and still remind ourselves of some of the great stories in our history. So what I thought I would do... I would look back and see what the History of the World podcast was doing on this date on each of the previous four years that the podcast has been in existence. And um, it was it was a really fascinating project. I, I, when I looked back and it, it was amazing, some of the episodes and things that we were talking about. So I've cherry picked some diverse uh, sound clips from previous episodes so that we can revisit and enjoy some of the uh, some of the stories of the history of the world that we have already covered so last year this time last year um, we uh, we had we were in the medieval volume as we are now however we was we was very much in the early stages and this uh, at the moment, volume four, um, we're coming towards the end of the European uh, set of podcasts for volume four. So we're really, very, very close to the end. And I reflected on the almost 50 episodes that we've recorded so far. And it's been dominated by the Franks and the French. They've, they've really been central to such a lot of the stories of European culture and not least of all to do with Britain, to do with the uh, to do with the Moors, to do with the Visigoths, to do with um, to do with Italy and the way that Charlemagne um, had influence over Italy and the Papal States, the the origins of Germany and um, the identity of those uh, states such as Hungary and, and the Bavarians and the Bohemians and all of those cultures that Charlemagne brought the Franks into close contact with. So, so it's really been 
um, central to the whole European story is the Franks and the French. But um, way back one year ago, we were discussing the origins of the Franks and how it all began. And uh, we certainly introduced ourselves to one of those men who um, who has been labelled and um, by historians, um, and certainly in the French um, in in French history, and uh, he has been dubbed the very first king of France. In actual fact, he was the man who brought the Frankish tribes together as one, and his name was. Clovis, and we talked about him way back one year ago in episode 15. Have a listen to this. Childeric passed away in the year 481, and his successor as the Merovingian king of the Salian Franks was his own 15-year-old son, Clovis. By the time that Clovis had become the king, the Salian Frank status as a federatus had become meaningless because the Romans had been pushed back into Italy from their lands in Gaul and the imperial throne of the Western Roman Empire had been usurped and diminished in nominal status by a barbarian warlord called Odoacha. The only Roman ruled land that existed in Gaul was westwards along the coast from Frankish territory at the Kingdom of Soissons. The ruler of this kingdom was a man called Siagrius. Gregory of Tours, the 6th century bishop and historian, described Siagrius as the king of the Romans. Clovis had decided that the fortunes of the Salian Franks would be greater if they could take control of the kingdom of Soissons, and so he would pester Siagrius and his nation until the two entities faced off in the fateful Battle of Soissons in 486. Defeat for the forces of Siagrius at the Battle of Soissons meant that Clovis extended his influence over a larger area of the northwest coast of Europe and removed Roman rule from this area. Siagrius had no option but to flee south towards the kingdom of the Visigoths, but we're really not sure what happened exactly to him directly afterwards. We do know that the Visigoths felt nervous about having Siagrius as a refugee in their country and eventually would surrender him to Clovis where he is suggested to have met an abrupt end. The next notable engagement came from Clovis's opposite side on the east when King Sigebert the Lame of the Ripuarian Franks called on Clovis to help him in defending his lands against the Alemanni, yet another Germanic tribe who dominated an area of land north of the Alps. As a matter of interest, many of you will be aware of the French name for the country of Germany, Alemannia, which is a cognate with the Latin name for the Alemanni Confederation of Germanic Tribes. The culmination was the Battle of Tolbiac, which saw the heavy losses on both sides, but Clovis's ultimate victory cemented his dominance over the Alemanni, now his new subjects. A lot of our information relating to the life and reign of Clovis comes from the writings of Gregory of Tours, 
who would have had a motivation for promoting aspects of Catholicism in order to demonstrate that Catholicism played a large part in the original success of the Frankish peoples. Directly to the south of Clovis's territory was the Kingdom of Burgundy, and Clovis married the daughter of the recently slain King Schilperic II of Burgundy, Princess Clotilde, in the year 493. Three years after the marriage was the Battle of Tolbiac against the Alemanni that we previously described. It is said that Clovis, originally a pagan, was facing possible defeat during the battle and that he appealed to Clotilda's god for support which the god gave on the basis of Clovis's promise to convert his people to the Catholic faith and this did indeed happen. Clotilde has been since venerated as a saint. It seems that by now Clovis had captured the attention of the whole of Europe with his expansionism bringing him onto the borders of both the Visigothic and Ostrogothic kingdoms. The Burgundians were sandwiched in the middle of all of these parties. Clovis would have had to have subdued the Burgundians despite being married to one of their princesses and this would enable him to take the threat of potential war with the Gothic Kingdom seriously. The Byzantine Emperor Anastasius would be pleased that a powerful rival to the Gothic Kingdoms had emerged and encouraged Clovis, even ultimately naming Clovis as a Byzantine consul in honour of his achievements. The Visigothic Kingdom had been established in southern Gaul early in the 5th century and following the collapse of Roman dominance of Western Europe, the Visigoths were able to take advantage of the vacuum created and defeat some of their weaker neighbours to build a large kingdom stretching from the middle of modern France all the way down to the southern coasts of modern Spain and Portugal. Clovis would decide to take an army south across the Vienne River obliging the Visigothic king Alaric II to engage with him at the Battle of Vie. It appears that Alaric was killed during the battle and the Visigothic army fled. This enabled Clovis to further extend his territory to take control of much of southern Gaul. Clovis was still fairly young when he defeated the Visigoths in 507. He may have been just over 40 years old he had taken the throne of a group of Frankish tribes as a teenager and within a quarter of a decade had expanded his position across lands not totally unlike the modern country of France geographically. The population of his kingdom may have even outnumbered those of the Visigothic kingdom and those of the Ostrogothic kingdom. Clovis may have been only around 45 years of age when he passed away in the year 511 but we do not have any detail about his death. So we can often make the mistake, can't we, of thinking that uh, older societies um, are not as advanced as, you know, perhaps they really were. So Clovis was really using those techniques of diplomacy and intermarriage to extend his influence, um, not unlike 
what was going on a thousand years afterwards. So um, we can really see those elements of even classical world uh, culture is really filtered into the uh, Germanic tribes at that stage. And Clovis took full advantage of all of the opportunities before him, a real master of, uh, of leadership there. Um, now, that was a year ago. If we go back two years in the History of the World podcast, we were in the classical world, but we weren't actually in Europe. We was elsewhere. We was on the Indian subcontinent. And we were talking about this great emperor of the Mauryan Empire called Ashoka the Great. Now, Ashoka the Great, um, there's been films made about him. And uh, he's really notable for his uh, conversion to Buddhism. Uh, but let's go back and listen to the event which we which is really cited as the the time when Ashoka um, turned his beliefs from that of being a tyrant ruler, a bloodthirsty tyrant ruler, into becoming uh, a Buddhist uh, supporter uh, with a completely different outlook on life. Let's uh, go back now. Accounts of Ashoka's early reign portray him as a cruel and heartless king with a penchant for personally torturing captured enemies. This appears to be regardless of being touched by any notion of a non-violent way of life as mentioned previously. So this would certainly bring into question whether Ashoka could have had any Buddhist influence on his first wife Devi before this time if indeed it was him to influence her. There are multiple accounts from different sources describing how Ashoka instigated massacres, but not just against enemies. Ministers, countrymen and concubines could all be slaughtered if they did not adhere to the will of the emperor. The account of Ashoka in his early years is a very un-Buddhist account. Ashoka turned his attention to the Kalinga region of the Indian subcontinent, certainly within the first decade of the reign. Kalinga was a rich and vibrant area of the subcontinent, full of trade across the seas of the Bay of Bengal. It was a prize to be won and a valuable addition to the already successful empire of the Mauryans. We don't have any details related to exactly what happened when Ashoka invaded Kalinga. But accounts portray the conflict as like nothing ever described in the subcontinent. The scriptures from these ancient times tell us that 100,000 were killed during this war. They also tell us that 150,000 Kalingans were deported. The legend of Ashoka encourages us to believe that his life-changing moment was when he was surveying the battlefield after a victory against the Kalingans. He was horrified by the bloodshed and it was said to have had a profound effect on him. This image is brought to life in a resonant manner in the Santosh Sivan's 2001 film Ashoka. 
Edict 13, inscribed on a rock during the later life of Ashoka, tells us the following. Ashoka conquered the Kalingas eight years after his coronation. 150,000 were deported, 100,000 were killed, and many more died. After the Kalingas had been conquered, Ashoka came to feel a strong inclination towards the Dharma. A love for the Dharma and for instruction in Dharma. Now Ashoka feels deep remorse for having conquered the Kalingas. Now it is conquest by Dharma that Ashoka considers to be the best conquest. I have had this Dharma edict written so that my sons and great-grandsons may not consider making new conquests, or that if military conquests are made, that they be done with forbearance and light punishment, or better still that they consider making conquest by Dharma only for that bears fruit in this world and the next. May all their intense devotion be given to this, which has a result in this world and the next. So that was the enlightenment of Ashoka the Great, as has been written retrospectively about him and uh, a lot of edicts were created and inscribed in India and, and this is where we get a lot of our information from so it's all really from first-hand uh, accounts that um, were distributed around uh, the Mauryan Empire by Ashoka himself at uh, his command. So really interesting uh, once again and uh, a real insight into the origins of uh, the the migration of Buddhism, especially over to Sri Lanka. It's all, we, we attribute that to the children of Ashoka. So um, good episode to listen to uh, if you ever want to revisit. Anyway, that's it for two years ago. Now, three years ago, what were we doing three years ago? Well, we had already started the Classical World Volume, Volume 3, but uh, of course, uh, with most of our volumes, we, uh, we, we start out talking about the Near Eastern Europe. Now, one of the great events that were happening between uh, culture of the Near East and cultures of Europe uh, was, of course, the Persian invasion of Greece. And uh, we were talking about the second Persian invasion. So the first Persian invasion was, of course, the Battle of Marathon, uh, where Darius the Great uh, came over and was uh, was defeated ultimately by the Greeks, um, especially the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon. Uh, but then uh, Darius's son Xerxes came back for another try about ten years later, and uh, of course. Uh, they were much more successful, the Achaemenid Persians, at that point. They managed to uh, take control of Athens and things were looking extremely grim for the Greek coalition. The Greeks did not know what to do and it would come as no surprise that the Athenians in exile and the Spartans both believed 
that they knew what was best. The Spartan naval commander was a man called Eurybiades, and Eurybiades believed that the Greek fleet should withdraw to the Peloponnese to defend the Spartan heartlands. However, the Athenian commander Themistocles felt otherwise. He believed that by heading off the Achaemenid fleet before they reached the Peloponnese, that the allied Greeks would have a better chance of success. At the mouth of the Athenian seaports, there was a large island called Salamis, and between this island and the mainland was a strait of water called the Strait of Salamis. So the Greeks eventually decided to try and engage the Persian fleet there. When Xerxes learned of all the Greek willingness to engage, he leapt at the chance, feeling that he had the Greeks on the back foot and saw an opportunity to strike the killer blow to their navy. It is said that Themistocles sent a messenger to the Achaemenids to give them false information in order to gain a tactical advantage. Whether this is true or not is debatable. It would be quite understandable for the Achaemenids to believe that momentum was in their favour and King Xerxes would even personally settle at a high vantage point to observe this great battle and the glory of Persian dominance over the Greeks. When the Achaemenid fleet approached the seaports of Athens at the Strait of Salamis, the Greek naval fleet retreated into a narrow strait of water. This would entice the Achaemenid naval fleet into the strait and this is exactly what Themistocles was banking on. As soon as the high numbers of Achaemenid warships entered the straits, the Allied Greeks struck back, attacking the Achaemenid boats in a surprise counter-attack. The Achaemenid ships realised that they would need to back up, but such was the high numbers of the Achaemenid fleet that a retreat was impossible, and as the Greeks advanced, the Achaemenids simply ended up getting in each other's ways, crashing into each other and accidentally attacking each other in the blind panic. The Greeks would ram the panicking Achaemenid fleet, boarding their boats and slaughtering their men. This was an absolute unforeseen disaster for the Achaemenids. They had been drawn in and trapped and now they couldn't escape from these treacherous narrow waterways. Ultimately, the Allied Greeks would capture and sink hundreds of the Achaemenid ships. Thousands of Achaemenid Persians were slaughtered or drowned in the torrid waters of the Strait of Salamis. Xerxes was absolutely horrified. This was now a done deal and a crushing and unexpected defeat for him and his Achaemenid Persians. Xerxes had no option but to demand a retreat, undoing all of the hard work that he and his forces had done to get this far in the first place. Xerxes had had enough of Greece and decided that he wanted to return to Persia with the remnants of his forces. It would be the Achaemenid Persian commander Mardonius who would offer to stay 
in friendly Balkan territory with a small force to keep an eye on things. Mardonius had been a close ally of Xerxes' own father, Darius the Great, and had also been trusted to make preparations for Darius' first invasion of Greek lands some 12 years earlier, before Datis would take over and provoke the Battle of Marathon. So Mardonius would stay and Xerxes would go, and the Allied Greeks had scored an unbelievable victory. If Marathon was great, then surely Salamis was even greater. We find in history these great stories of battles that in no two battles are the same and the repercussions, uh, you know, can be different for each one. And um, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, what could have happened to the world had things gone according to plan for the Achaemenid Persians and they had uh, conquered the Greek states, what would have become of Greece and, and what would Greece look like today as a consequence? It's just, we'll never know. We'll never know. We can only speculate. But uh, an incredible story, uh, the Battle of Salamis. And um, let's uh, finally go back to what the History of the World podcast was talking about four years ago on this day. Um, our last uh, retrospective visit will be to Volume 2. And uh, back in Volume 2, it was one of the more popular episodes of the volume that we were discussing, the Late Bronze Age Collapse, something that happened towards the end of the second millennium BCE, where all of the societies of Eurasia and the, and, you know, the Near East, the Eastern Mediterranean, all were affected by this collapse in trade networks and these mysterious migrations of peoples um, that led to many different societies um, collapsing or even just completely disappearing off the map. And uh, uh, four years ago, I was forced into the corner of stating what I felt went, uh, went on back then. So let us summarise exactly what we have discovered about the Late Bronze Age collapse and what could have happened to cause it. The one empire which people talk about with vigour when it comes to the discussion of the Late Bronze Age collapse are the Hittites. The Hittites were a powerhouse of the known world in the second millennium BCE and the Late Bronze Age collapse marked the sudden and permanent end to the empire. Cities are believed to have been sacked and abandoned throughout the empire. Byblos, Ugarit, Aleppo and the Hittite capital of Hattusha all had similar fates. When looking for the perpetrators, we can see that the Mycenaeans suffered destruction of their own cities and empire in a similar fashion, with Troy, Mycenae and Canossus among the sacked Mycenaean cities. Across in the other corner of the Mediterranean, the Egyptian stance at the time of these sackings appeared to be one of taking defence, which was unusual in the days of the Middle Kingdom. Egypt was reportedly getting attacked by who 
they would call sea peoples. Were the sea peoples just chances? Were they displaced people from the Mycenaean Greek or Hittite empires? Were they the same people who attacked the Mycenaean Greek or Hittite empires? The empires to the east were not really ones to gain much from the decline and demise of the Mediterranean kingdoms. The Assyrians took a stance of aggression by overrunning and subjugating the Mitanni, the Kassite Babylonians and the Elamites. But in turn, the Assyrians did not have the ability to maintain power over these remote lands and as such they had to revert to being a very small and centralised state surrounding its key cities only. It appears that the former empires did not re-emerge as one might expect. So, I am now under pressure to offer you an explanation as to what I believe happened during this period. Why did the late Bronze Age collapse happen? Well, I will stress that my opinion is one based only on my own personal studies conducted in the large part in the comfort of my own home, mainly with books and internet articles at my disposal. I am not an archaeologist with first-hand knowledge of any of the discoveries, so in this summary there may be things that I should have considered more seriously, but I do have a feeling about what I think may have happened, and I often try to go for the most likely event, as opposed to letting my imagination take over. So here is what I think happened and what I am basing it on. This is not the first time that we have seen dramatic shifts in human societies and in the past when we have seen a dramatic shift we have been able to often attribute it to some form of climate change. Society also appears to be very advanced by this stage and artefacts from the period demonstrate that all the empires and kingdoms show a healthy exchange of wares. The fact that bronze was being produced all over the region must have been the result of a healthy trade network due to the fact that tin was not native to any of these places. It had to be imported. During the prehistoric volume of podcasts, we introduced a branch of science called palynology, which is the study of small particles such as pollen, and with this we can look for clues about what was going on in the past. A palynological study from the late Bronze Age period demonstrates a climate change which may have been responsible for agricultural failures across the Near East. When agriculture fails, society begins to weaken as a consequence and if the rulers of the cities did not have the resources to act to prevent famine and poverty then the citizens would become desperate and either create an uprising or look for somewhere else to live. If your city was failing then you may go to the next city and attempt to invade it. That neighbouring city may be trying to defend itself or more likely suffering in the same way with the breakdown of its society. In this case, peoples would revert back to a much more nomadic way of life, moving from place to place 
and attempting to invade other people's societies. This could explain why so many cities were attacked. And this could also explain why so many of these fortified and historically successful cities were overcome. Society had been weakened by drought. Mass migrations were taking place as peoples were moving in great numbers to try to find and establish new settlements. The more successful migrations that were taking place added to the number of the displaced peoples. Kingdoms would break down as cities would effectively have to fend for themselves, as was with the unfortunate case of Ugarit, where its army had been commissioned to defend other Hittite cities and Ugarit was left to be destroyed. These mass migrations of peoples would migrate over both land and sea, hence why the Egyptians believed that the peoples attacking them were sea peoples, as Egypt's weakest boundaries were its Mediterranean shores. An area of the Levant appears to have been settled by peoples adept at making pottery in the style of the Mycenaeans, so perhaps they were displaced from Mycenaean Greece. These people became what we know today as the Philistines. I believe that the Sea Peoples were not a united group of peoples collectively looking to raid lands like pirates, but were simply displaced populations simply looking for somewhere to live, and requiring to do this by aggressive means. Their comparative success, which may have been in part due to the weakening of empires due to agricultural failures, also meant the disintegration of kingdoms as a whole and cohesion of kingdoms breaking down, which in turn would have a major effect on national and international trade. As we can see in today's modern world, trade and economics are a finely balanced relationship that can be dramatically affected should anything go wrong. The financial crisis of 2007-2008 is described as emanating from one market in the United States of America and would affect the economies of the world by way of a knock-on effect. The same principle would have applied to the nations of the Near East and this is likely why the Assyrians did not prosper as a result of the destruction of the empires of the Levant. The previous trade relationships that the Assyrians enjoyed were no longer available now that the Hittites were no longer around. Near Eastern society would need to start all over again. The days of the mighty empires were over. So there we go, that was four years ago. Uh, my theories about the late Bronze Age collapse um, you know, I'm sure there's many people out there that would like to debate with me about uh, my thoughts and opinions, but wasn't it a different podcast back then, four years ago? A lot of supposition and a lot of speculation, and now we're in the medieval uh, series. We've got a lot of material uh, that we can probably uh, place our beliefs into. So the podcasts these days are much more factually story-based podcasts rather than speculative podcast like we did so much in volume one and volume two so um just goes to show you how the podcast has had to develop uh as it's uh as it's attacked different time periods 
So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that little res- retrospective look. I, I wanted to try something different because I know the un- unscripted podcasts don't often have uh, a theme and, and they're often just chucked together. I wanted to try something different. And maybe if this is popular, um, the next time uh, we're unable to publish a proper podcast episode, maybe we can do this again. Let me know your thoughts and opinions. Did you enjoy this week's retrospective look at History of the World podcast episodes of years gone by. Well, if you want to support the podcast, you might like to know that you can. If you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the Patreon link, you can sign up to make a monthly contribution. And when you do, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, our exclusive club for people who support the podcast. And when you become a member of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati, you can qualify for gifts and rewards. So why not go and have a look on the website now, click on the Patreon link and see what you could be entitled to if you support the podcast. The Ancient World Cup. There was, of course, a very important point of business this week. We are down to the last four teams in the History of the World podcast Ancient World Cup. And we're, we've boiled it down from 64 teams to four, thanks to all of your votes over the course of the last, well, I don't know, God knows how many weeks now. Um, but this, I think we've certainly been doing this for longer than a year, haven't we? So it's really been an epic competition and we're right on the knockings now the two semi-finals have been determined and the first semi-final took place this week and it was between the Macedonians and the ancient Egyptians both of these teams have come a long way and defeated many other teams on their way to this point so um, the Macedonians in the quarterfinals of course defeated the Franks and the ancient Egyptians defeated the Sumerians. So some real powerhouses. So the Macedonians, um, their biggest icon I would suggest is Alexander the Great, who created this huge Macedonian empire, which the likes of which hadn't been seen before. And of course the ancient Egyptians and everything that comes with them, their legacy uh, to uh, history, ancient history, and even the world that we live in today. Well, the votes were counted up. I've got to say thank you very much to uh, 81 voters who took part this week. Uh, you took part on the Facebook page, the History of the World podcast Facebook page, the Facebook uh, fan group, the Twitter account and the Instagram account. All of these accounts can be discovered if you go to the History of the World podcast.com website and click on the interact link. And um, I can announce that the winners this week with a huge 67%, yes, of course, it was the ancient Egyptians. So now we have our first finalist in the History of the World podcast, Ancient World Cup. So well done to the ancient Egyptians and thank you to everyone who voted for them. And all we need to do now is see who their opponents will be. So tune into the podcast next week for the preview of the second semi-final. 
Well, that's it for this week. We'll return next week with the proper episode and I can pretty much guarantee that that will happen. It will be the Siege of Orléans. It will be Joan of Arc. And it will also be the introduction to the second semi-final of the Ancient World Cup. And of course, we'll be reading out your emails and messages and uh, introducing all of the newest members of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati. All the normal stuff will be back next week. But uh, don't forget to let me know what you thought of this week's um, very unique episode, something we've never done before. Would you like to hear this kind of thing again if we get held up on the production of the real episodes? Uh, Let me know, please. Uh, I'm very interested. But until next week, when we return with episode 50, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.